to be back, and happy Easter, everyone. Are you enjoying March Madness? Uh, for our foreign listeners out there, it's the NCAA basketball tournament where college players, under the auspices of getting an education, play basketball while coaches and colleges collect millions of dollars for the broadcasting rights. And the players get next to nothing. Funny how the colleges are so resistant to paying these uh, students. Anyhow, this year we have number eight seed Massachusetts Institute of Technology against number three seed Caltech tomorrow and Cal Berkeley against arch rival Stanford. Uh, Carnegie Mellon is up against Case Western in what promises to be a Rutz Belt blitz. And then it's Harvard versus the University of Chicago for what could be an upset. A senior and physics major Jerome Watkins has had a breakthrough year. As you no doubt can guess, I don't give a fuck and made that up. It would be nice if there was some academic prowess and not just athletic prowess behind the schools that are up there. But it's not likely. So it's Easter. Uh, My daughter wanted to stage a camera to trap the Easter Bunny, but we didn't think the Easter Bunny would be so happy about it. Uh, She's at the stage where she thinks that there is no Easter Bunny, and it might just be me, but she isn't sure. So she's afraid to come downstairs because the Easter Bunny might be around. We got more food-related items for the kids than candy. Made Easter eggs, of course. But my wife got them bento boxes. I'm not sure if they're ready for that. And she bought us those metal dishes that latch together like they have in India where someone delivers lunch to you. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that unless I hire some grandmother to make me lunch. It looks interesting, at least. I got them small ceramic mugs because the dog just keeps on eating their cups. And without any further ado... Let's go on to Bucky, part two. Bucky, part two? Chapter two, NYU. A week earlier, Isaac sat in his small office at New York University Mathematics Department, doodling patterns of triangles and dots and lines rather than grade calculus quizzes for his recitation. He made a raspberry with his lips, spun around in his chair, and thought about how much he hated procrastinating, and simultaneously, how much he hated waiting until the day before the quizzes had to be graded, and with a humph, finally got down to grading the quizzes. Half of his time would be devoted to deciphering the student's handwriting. This was the life you were meant to live, Isaac, he recalled his mother saying. You were meant to be a teacher. Oh, I can feel it in my bones. He powered through the stack of quizzes. This was not the life he wanted, regardless of how talented others imagined he was in mathematics. About halfway through the stack, he heard a knock on the door. Come on in, he said. A white guy with blonde dreadlocks walked in. He had the face of a classical Roman statue and the charisma to match. He gave Isaac a broad smile, high-fived him, and gave him a friendly hug as soon as he entered the room. Hi, Mike. What's going on? Isaac said. You coming out? Mike said. Isaac patted the stack of the remaining quizzes. Uh, we're going to Trois Petits Cochons. You're killing me, 
I love that place, but I've got to grade these damn quizzes. Come on, why do today what you can put off tomorrow? Or just fail them all. He decided he could get back to the papers after a bit of French bistro food in him. Un bon pont. Isaac had drunk his second glass of wine by the time the appetizers arrived. He stopped himself from staring at Mike's girlfriend of the day, a brunette with perfectly formed teeth, a broad smile, slightly wavy hair coming to her shoulders, and wore a paisley dress. Her freckles highlighted her brown eyes. Isaac, you've got to leave that flea-ridden mathematics department, Mike said, pointing at him with the escargot fork. Isaac rolled his fingers through his hair and poured himself some more wine. The brunette leaned against Isaac and said, Math, huh? So you're the smart one he's been talking about. Isaac blushed. Don't believe anything the Rasta says, he said, and swallowed a mouthful of red wine. He's right, though. I should be doing something else. I don't know. It's not an I don't know. It's definitely... You hate grading those papers. You like the problems. What are you going to do over there? Solve for Matt's last theorem? Mike said. Well, that's already been done, Isaac said. Whatever, the only thing the math department does is teach calc and then go about trying to solve some crazy problems for their own amusement. They're pretty much a self-admiration society. It's not quite that simple. Okay, yeah, there's some applied stuff, but then you might as well do finance, engineering, or physics if you're going down that route. Isaac took a sip of the wine. He heard this argument from Mike before and knew where it was going. Get out while you can. You're not that far into it. Go uptown to Columbia. Get into their environmental engineering program. You're more of a nature lover than me. Isaac took a stab at one of the snails. I know I should get out, but it's complicated. By what? Do you have two pages left on your thesis? A tenured position at Oxford when you're done? No, just complicated. Isaac looked down, put the escargot on a piece of baguette and ate it. The brunette coughed. Hi, we haven't been formally introduced. I'm Angela. Isaac shook her hand. Isaac. Sorry, we kind of have this discussion now and then. We must have bored you. No, I'm familiar with it. I want to study painting, but for some reason I'm in finance, Angela said. Mike mentioned that before, I think. NYU Stern? Yep. She raised an eyebrow, gave a half smirk, and plucked out a snail, and bit it quickly, giving Isaac a wink. Isaac lifted his glass. To angst, Angela said. Isaac and Angela clinked their glasses together and they smiled. Fortified with wine and food, Isaac returned to his office to grade the remaining quizzes. Halfway through, he thought, Mike, lucky bastard, gets every girl he meets. As for himself, he's had success, but he rarely tried. Hearing chattering in the hallway, he looked out and saw a couple students with thin, scraggly beards and comic book sweatshirts. One carried a go set while the other talked about a linear algebra problem loudly. Isaac shuddered at the embodiment of math geek stereotypes. He plowed through the rest of the quizzes until he'd completed grading them at 3 a.m. Since he wouldn't get any quality sleep if he trudged back to his apartment, he grabbed a Coke out of the vending machine, flopped on a comfortable but battered brown sofa, 
and started writing in his pocket notebook. Most of the ideas in the notebook were just that, ideas. None had any follow-up. He brainstormed ideas for what to do with his life. Return to Israel, get a job at McDonald's and laugh at mom, work on Wall Street, become a park ranger, ran a whaling ship for Greenpeace. He thought about childhood and drew a picture of a soccer ball. Then he drew another version of the soccer ball, this time just as a sequence of dots and lines. He looked at the drawing and recalled a lecture on nanotechnology from undergraduate days. It looked like something popping sporadically in nature. Buckminster fullerenes, commonly known as buckyballs. He scratched his head. The buckyballs had to be able to be assembled somehow. It looked mathematically and chemically beautiful to Isaac, practically a sphere. On his chalkboard, he drew a larger-scale buckyball. He bounced a tennis ball off the chalkboard, thinking about how to make a buckyball. That might not be the easiest thing to assemble, he thought, but... He put down the tennis ball and opened up the saw from a Swiss army knife from his desk. He hacked the tennis ball until it was a long strip, like a continuous peel of an apple. The structure looked familiar to him. The internet would be useless for something which he couldn't even describe. He was looking for cues to trigger his memory. He wrestled through several books from his bookshelf. Advanced Molecular Biology. He scanned through it until he found an image that looks familiar. Bingo! Protein. He heard noises in the hallway. People were arriving. Wherever he was too excited to leave the office. Could the same technique used in nature to create proteins also be used to create a buckyball? For a minute he thought the exercise was pointless. Even with all the media talk about nanotechnology, buckyballs didn't appear to have much of an application from what he'd read. Every reason that this was a good exercise, there must have been some reason he made it this far down the path beyond mere idea. So, proteins are made by RNA. Well, if proteins are made by RNA, then why couldn't a buckyball be made by RNA? He ran to the library and read about protein assembly, pulling heaps of books off the stacks. He stopped reading only to furiously scribble in his notebook. Bathroom breaks could wait. Proteins resembled linguine gone awry, while a buckyball would be more like a perfectly formed meatball. Also, proteins were filled with a variety of elements besides carbon. The trick with a buckyball was that it was pure carbon, but the structure was this beautiful ball. It was chemically elegant, just 60 atoms of carbon strung together. C60. Once he noticed the students coming in and out of the library, he looked at the clock. Shit, he said. He ran to his office, grabbed his graded quizzes, shoved them into his bag, and headed off to his calculus recitation. He handed out the graded quizzes, then went over the answers as well as the answers to the prior day's homework. Few of the students were ever deeply involved in the recitation, but this time he had a question for them thinking about the structure of the buckyball. Did any of you make one of those structures that looks kind of geometric? Can't think of the name. The students looked around and scratched their heads. The ones that look like Dungeons and Dragons dice, Isaac said. Do they still play that? It's an old man's game, one of the students said. 
The rest of the students laughed, but one of the students fidgeted in his chair and said, Tessellation? Thanks, Dungeon Master. Do I get extra credit? Just ten experience points and a plus one versus math instructors. A couple students chuckled. After his recitation, he attended his own classes. He distracted himself during class with the buggyball puzzle. Although during most of the classes he doodled in his notebook, he paid attention when one of the professors went on a discourse on the applications of mathematical modeling. How about organic chemistry, Isaac said. The professor straightened his bow tie. Of course, genetic computing. That's all the rage in computation. And computing is just math, the professor said. Everything is math. Returning to the library, Isaac took out books on tessellations as well as biological and chemical mathematical modeling. He sketched how a buckyball would appear as a tessellation, a series of 20 hexagons and 12 pentagons. It looked like an arts and crafts project from middle school, with polygon after polygon linked together. From that, he executed calculations in his notebook and saw that with the correct sequence, it was theoretically possible to create a tessellation like his buckyball using RNA. But rather than delight in this knowledge, he snarled at the notebook. It was one thing to create a buckyball on paper, but another when he realized that carbon typically does not exist by itself. Instead, carbon would be part of some other molecule from which he would have to wrest the carbon atom. He first tried using the simplest molecule he could think of, methane, CH4, and found that RNA would not be cooperative, no matter how he jiggered the RNA sequence. He next tried something simple, regularly appearing in the natural world, fructose, and had similar results. He snorted, pushed aside the books, shoved his notebook in his pocket, and walked outside. He was missing something. The answer had to be simple, and looking at him in the face. He took a walk to the NYU Environmental Center. He was greeted with a smile by Autumn, a chirpy perpetual student dressed in cargo pants and a hemp t-shirt. Hi there, Isaac. What are you doing here so early, she said. Frustrated with a problem I'm working on. Can't think. Got anything I can do today? Autumn propped her head against her hand and leaned against the table. Oh, tell me about it. I couldn't deal with the noise on the street last night. Mm, not that kind of problem. Kind of a chemical problem. Oh, you do look stressed. Well, not more than usual. When I feel that way, there's an herbal cleanser I use to get rid of all the toxins. More like a mathematical, chemical problem. Autumn twirled her hair. Well, I can't help you there. To be honest, I can't do the math to figure out how many credits it'll take to graduate. Isaac nodded towards the binder. Got anything I can help you with? Autumn looked through the binder. You can hand out flyers for a rally next week. Isaac grimaced. Autumn clapped her hands together. Ooh, how about escorting children through the Central Park Zoo? I just love kids. Do you love kids? Although tempted with an immediate response of no, he knew better than to say that to a woman. Well, that doesn't sound bad, but do you have something a little more physical? Autumn closed the book. She leaned towards Isaac and lowered her voice. I have just the thing for you, but you have to promise to keep it to yourself. She opened a closet, pulled out a long case, a New York City Department of Parks and Recreation jacket, 
and a wad of garbage bags. She held the case like it held a rifle. You can't go around walking on the subway with this exposed. MTA will be all over you. So we have a case for it. She opened up the case, which contained a pole with a handle. She took it out, crumpled a piece of paper, and threw it on the ground. You have to be careful with this. She squeezed the handle, and a small spike appeared at the bottom of the pole. Just spike the trash with the pole. Autumn stabbed at the crumpled piece of paper, narrowing her eyes. Once the paper was impaled on the pole, she said, Gotcha! Anyway, to release the trash, squeeze the trigger again. She squeezed the trigger, and the spike audibly retracted into the pole. Isaac smiled. You're like Ahab trying to kill Moby Dick with that pole. Now I know how you get rid of your aggression. Where should I go? He said. Autumn looked at him like he told her a riddle. I'd say Fort Tryon Park all the way uptown. Stay off the paths in the street and you'll be safe from the Parks and Recreation Department. They just don't want any competition for their jobs. The only thing they care about is cleaning up the walking paths. The rest of the park doesn't matter to them. There's plenty of paper, cans, and those damn plastic bottles out there. Oh yeah, here's a pair of gloves, but I'd be careful what you pick up. There's a bit of glass and the occasional needle out there. Sounds like you have some experience. Autumn smirked and looked sideways at Isaac. You could say that, but that's for another day. See you when you get back. Isaac took the A train uptown to Fort Tryon Park. The air was cool and crisp. He put on the jacket and removed the pole from its case. He shoved the pole back in its bag. He shoved the pole back in his bag. The park had a good number of leaves on the ground, and while the sidewalk and pavement appeared to be clean enough, he could tell that Autumn was right. Debris piled up among the trees and wilder areas of the park. He walked down the leaf-covered incline where trash collected and began spiking trash in the garbage bags. But first he was still thinking about his buckyball problem. Once he focused on cleaning up the incline while maintaining his balance, he fully engaged with his new task and his garbage bags soon ballooned with papers, bottles, cigarette butts, chicken bones, and myriad plastic bags. On his way up the incline to drop off a trash bag, he heard a man say, Hey! Isaac looked up to see a parks department worker peering at him with half-closed eyes. He tilted his head towards his bag. You new around here? The man said. Yup, Isaac said. Don't remember anyone saying someone else was going to cover the area. Let me check to see if you're in the right spot. The sanitation worker pulled out a walkie-talkie. Isaac thought of a way out, but needed a delay. He switched to a heavy Brooklyn accent. Isaac thought of a way out, but needed a delay. He switched to a heavy Brooklyn accent. Yeah, but mind if you take this bag first? This hill's a bitch. I figure better to start with the hard stuff. Isaac thought of a way out, but needed a delay. He switched to a heavy Brooklyn accent. Yeah, but mind if you take this bag first? This hill's a bitch. I better figure to start with the hard stuff first. The sanitation worker looked down at the incline, then at him. After a few seconds, he swooped and grabbed the bag. Shit, ten years of doing this, no way I'm climbing down there. With that clean parks commission shit, they're getting on everyone's ass to clean everything up. I bet you these are the same ones who preach don't pollute and then throw a water bottle out the window. Isaac thought about the right approach. Yeah, fuck that clean parks commission shit. They high-fived. Damn right. Though it does pay the bills. 
I don't mind that. Yeah. I just don't want to risk my neck cleaning things up. That looks like army stuff right there, climbing down that hill. I'll tell you what, new guy, you go ahead and clean that up. The more you do there, the less likely I'm going to fall down there and break my neck when one of those fools asks me to clean it up. No problem. Now I'll tell you what, if you do fall down and break your neck, I'll say you were doing it as part of your job, and then here comes the money, baby. Welcome to the civil service. Isaac laughed. The parks department worker waved his hand and walked off. Isaac continued cleaning up the incline until a few bags were stuffed with trash. He brought the bags up, one by one, placing them next to a trash can, before resting against a tree at the bottom of the incline. He ate a granola bar and rested his head against the tree. He considered the motley bunch of trees, eastern white pines, birch, and maples. He thought it was amazing, really, that something so massive could grow out of dirt, water, sunlight, and they consume carbon dioxide and give off oxygen. Was it part of a divine plan? He didn't really care. It just worked. He grabbed a fallen maple leaf and examined it. Mathematically, it was made in a fractal pattern. Plants consume carbon dioxide. CO2, CO2, CO2. Lots of it around. Lots of it in cells. Plants breathe the stuff. He widened his eyes and said, Oh. Oh. Oh! I'm an idiot! He reflexively pulled out his notebook and started doing some calculations, but his numbers didn't make any sense, because atypically, they were exactly what he was looking for. He climbed back up the hill and stomped back to the subway. The sanitation worker, seeing him walk intently towards the subway, yelled at him, Taking an early day, huh? On the subway platform, he started shaking, thinking his calculations might actually be right, that carbon dioxide was actually the answer to his problem. He saw that he was still carrying the pole exposed, so he quickly put it back into its case, and took off the jacket, shoving it in his bag. On the ride back to NYU, he ran through the calculations twice. They looked right, but some numbers he would have to look up. Something a few decimal places off were a wrong constant, and the exercise could be for nothing. He went straight to his office and copied all the constants he needed from the CRC handbook. Pulling out a calculator with faded keys so there was just the shadows of numbers remaining on it, he performed the calculations, then recalculated it every step. He thought he made a mistake when he made the final calculation the first time. The calculator displayed a zero. He thought he accidentally cleared the calculator. He entered the calculation again. The calculator again gave him a zero. Come on, you piece of junk. Don't die on me now, he said. For the third time, the calculator gave him a zero. Isaac spun the calculator aside on the desk and grunted. Then he stood up and said, Aha! Pointing in the air. His calculation was right. That's how it's supposed to work, he said. He sat, smiled, then frowned. It was then he realized the implications of the discovery. Leaning back, he said, Holy shit! This could change everything.
For those of you who don't know what Costco is, it's a huge warehouse store where you can buy a gallon of relish, a full set of metric wrenches, and five pounds of carrots all in one trip. Because you never know when you'll have to serve a hundred hot dogs. Anyhow, it's the store where people are careening their carts through a warehouse space. When you first enter the store, it's not too bad. There are a few obstacles until you reach the area where they start selling food. Uh, then they start having samples of some of their products. You rapidly discover that Americans are apparently malnourished because they line up like cattle to a trough. Sometimes it's a sample of krill oil drink or seaweed, and as you might expect, people don't reach out and take those. But they might give out samples of, say, one quarter of a chicken nugget, and people will line up six deep for that. My favorite was when they had Ritz crackers. Now, these were no ordinary samples, like maybe Ritz and Gouda, or salami, or hell, a tapenade. Now, these were samples of just plain Ritz crackers. You would have swore people had never encountered food in their entire lives. It was like we were in North Korea or something. A mob scene developed around these Ritz crackers. The funny thing was that a couple aisles over, they had samples of those Milano cookies, and no one was lining up for those. So, that was good stuff. Uh, the other thing that's odd about Costco, what happens is when you first join... The other odd thing that happens when you first join is that you're tempted and will probably buy more than you really could practically use. You like hot dogs, right? So you put that gallon of relish in the cart. You need to floss your teeth every day. Well, a pack of those should do. And you should be eating more salad. So put that 10-pack of romaine in the cart, too. And add in those 200 gel pens, because you know those always get lost. So by the time you're done on your first few trips, you've purchased way more than you can fit in your trunk, and have purchased more salad than your entire block could eat. But too bad you forgot salad dressing. You can pick up a half gallon of it the next time. My favorite instant, again, we have to return to those samples, was that one time there was this man a larger-than-life man, shall we say, and he had one of those mustaches that you see Chicago, or you imagine Chicago cops would have. And this man, I found him near the freezer aisle, and every time he saw one of those samples, I don't know what it could have been, for taquitos, they always have those, or something, he would just stop dead in the middle of the aisle, like, blocking your way. Again, as if another person who has never seen food before, and clearly this person has seen a lot of food before, but he would just stop dead, like, like, like a, a, a lost animal that has finally found some food or found something. But <laughs> then I'd go to the next aisle, and they'd have a sample of, I don't know, a little... little one cubic centimeter of pizza or something, and he'd stop dead again. Like, oh my god, I cannot escape this Chicago cop guy. Anyhow, it was just amusing to me at the time. Um, so next time you're at Costco, look around, 
don't be one of those people that stop like 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 the herd for one of those food samples. I mean, people will stop and wait while people prepare these samples. Um, it's kind of amazing. Um, and I'm kind of doubtful how many people actually uh, are uh, purchasing these items. I don't know. But don't be one of those people. So let's talk about uh, The Man in the High Castle, which is a book by Philip K. Dick. Um, I recently finished that book after borrowing it from the library, and then my wife got it for me for Christmas, and I uh, stopped reading it because I was like, oh, I'm going to read the version that, uh, well, it's the same book, but I'm going to read the book that she actually got me. Um, so I went on it on a uh, business trip and was actually able to finish that book on the plane um, on the way back from my business trip while waiting in the tarmac. Always a fun time. So too bad I didn't have another book to bring. I I didn't bring another book with me that I could have read. Um, You know, I think uh, Tolstoy's Tolstoy's Resurrection is up next or uh, what else do I got? I'm looking at them now. Maybe the sun also rises. So something's going to be up next. Um, but it might be a little bit, because, you know, we're all kind of busy. Anyhow, um, it's also a show on Amazon, uh, that's actually pretty decent. Uh, I finished that, you know, in one of those slam dunk sessions where you just watch it and watch it and watch it, and I, I enjoyed it, and my, I think my wife enjoyed it as well. Um, so, anyhow, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. Maybe I can get some echo in there. Spoiled. For both of them. Um, they both have pretty different plots, but there's some there's some um, common threads between the two of them. Uh, the basic plot of the novel is that girl meets boy. Um, the girl reads a book, and then boy tries to kill the author of the book, um, and girl kills boy. That's the basic plot of the novel. Um, The plot of the show, from season one at least, is that a girl uh, watches a movie. A girl meets boy. Boy tries to kill the creator of the movie, but is circumvented, and he never even gets to there in the first place. Um, And then, for whatever reason, girl rescues boy from the good guys. It's a little bit more convoluted, but hopefully this is going to go on for a few more seasons. Um, so, I don't think it's the plot that's particularly compelling, and like all sci-fi, what it's about is either an idea or a setting. So what, um, Philip K. Dick proposed is a setting in 1960s America, where the Allies lost World War II, and the Japanese are in control of the western U.S., while the Germans control the east coast. Uh, the middle of the country is kind of like a no-man's land. The German Reich and Japanese Empire are in a kind of Cold War. Uh, the book is mostly set in Cannon City, or in reality that they, they read about in the book, or in the, mov- in the show, the movie is the alternate reality. Um, that's actually the true reality. Um, it's kind of like the characters in the book are not experiencing reality itself, just some other form. 
So I think this is kind of like Descartes' evil god pulling the wool over the eyes of everyone. Um, the characters live in a reality where life is masked by everyone living under the Axis powers, but that's not reality. In the end, the illusion in the book is pierced by the light of the I Ching, which is a kind of oracle. And um, it was the I Ching that was actually writing book in 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 the man in the high castle um he it was actually writing the book through the novelist that the protagonist was trying to find that shows the true reality um in the show the I Ching is kind of just referred to as the oracle and is shown in the kind of traditional and somewhat obscure reference of using stalks to produce the hexagram as used in the I Ching. I think most people really would just use coins to determine it. And they just refer to it as the oracle, as if... Uh, the I Ching is a really interesting book, and hopefully uh, on another podcast I'm going to go into it. Uh, actually referred to referred to it uh, lately when I was corresponding to one of... Uh, corresponding to someone, uh, we were talking about the um, the man in the high castle, and I referred to it to determine whether I should read another book of his. Um, I think it was Cubic or something like Cubic. Cubic. The I Ching basically told me not to, but anyhow, more about the I Ching in another episode. Um, anyhow, both the movie and the book kind of have a brief sequence where a Japanese trade minister sees the true reality. Uh, but the book's much more explicit about the unmasking of the reality, though it hinted at it just at the end of the show. Um, I think the show does a good job of showing the alternate reality, um, but doesn't go quite as much into the darker side like the book does. Like, it shows how the Japanese instituted uh, black slavery, or that there was a genocide in Africa. And the genocide in Africa was by the, Ger- by the Germans, not by the Japanese. Um, also, for what it's worth, the Japanese are colonizing Mars, which I thought was really, really interesting. I guess they got uh, Von Braun to really get those, get that, uh, that's what he wanted to do, get those rockets going. So, that's pretty interesting. They don't, they don't explore too much about it, but um, that's there. Um, they got the impression in the book that Japanese were treated as a lesser lesser evil. Um, now, I think after the first season of the show, though, um, there could be more of an exploration of what reality actually is as it ended right when the trade minister had his vision of what reality is actually like. The book ends a bit suddenly, and the wool isn't pulled off our eyes as the reader until the very end, and it's kind of a little bit too abruptly for my taste. And also it was my uh, correspondent, uh, she also didn't like it how it's like at the end, it's like, huh? Um, That they just pulled that doozy that was like, oh, <laughs> the I Ching is the one that actually wrote the book, and this is not, you know, that, that's not 
reality. So that, that's a little, that was a little bit weird. But I, I actually, you know, the more I think about it, the more I really like how the I Ching actually wrote the book in the book to make things more confusing. Now, I think it's good to have a book that gets you thinking in more philosophical terms about the nature of reality. And that's something I think, you know, a few books really do. Um, I'd encourage everyone to read the book and then let me know what you think. You know, you know, you can buy it, get it out of the library, whatever. Uh, put some comments on the blog and let's get this conversation rolling. Well, that does it for this week's show. I hope you uh, enjoyed it. And you can reach me by Twitter. Uh, you can send me a tweet at S. Erickson, that's E-R-I-S-S-O-N-2. That's, that's uh, Twitter, S. Erickson2. Email me at S. Erickson at tetrabooks.net. And that's T-E-T-R-A-B-O-O-K-S dot net. Or leave a comment on the blog. It'd be great to hear your feedback on podcast anything i said if you've read the man in the high castle love to hear about that and that's it for now so i hope you enjoyed the sven erickson podcast so that's it for episode number two of the sven erickson podcast and i hope you have a fantastic week